Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's up, you guys? Sean Ross Sapp, Fightful.com. Here with a name you know. You know him as the Patriot. You know him as Del Wilkes. Del, how you doing? Doing good, Sean. How are you? I'm doing good. I was really excited to get this interview scheduled. Uh, fondly remember the Patriot from the days of my youth. How are you doing these days? Man, I'm doing great. Uh, still here in my native South Carolina, uh, right, out Columbia, right outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Been here all my life and um, doing wonderful. Got a couple of little beautiful granddaughters that I enjoy, so uh, things are going very, very well. Appreciate you asking. I see you doing some, some live streams occasionally on Facebook as well. I, I've seen several of those. How have you been, been liking doing some of those here and there? I enjoy it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's helped bring me into the technology age, uh, <laughs> and I've come kicking and screaming, really. I really have. I've struggled with it, but uh, I've opened up a little bit, and it's been fun to do that. Also, I have a podcast of my own that's on every Sunday night at 8 o'clock with my co-host, Avi Klein, called Unmasking the Truth, and in just in two short months, man, it's grown uh, a lot bigger than I really ever imagined it would. So uh, it's been fun being a part of technology and using it uh, for that benefit. So you've, uh, you're talking about a lot of different things there, but uh, many people, of course, remember you from your WCW, your WWF days. How did you land in WCW? How was that contact made to kind of bring you over there? Well, before I uh, was in WCW, I'd spent several years in all Japan pro wrestling working for Giant Baba, and I loved it over there. Uh, of all the places I've ever worked, that was my most favorite place was all Japan. But I wanted to get back home to the States so I could be closer to family. So Eric Bischoff reached out to me. Now, I had known Eric since the AWA day, AWA days. Uh, Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I worked for the AWA and Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne. Well, that business or that company had gone belly up. Eric had moved on. He was our TV guy in the AWA. And he had moved on to take over WCW. And he had a uh, booking by committee concept. And Greg Gagne was one of those on that committee. So Greg and Eric reached out to me. And I don't live but about three hours from Atlanta. And I drove over and sat down and had a meeting with Eric. And uh, a few hours later, walked out with the offer of a three-year deal, looked it over, had my attorney look it over and signed it and sent it back a couple of days later. Did you spend three years there or did that deal get cut short? The deal got cut short by me. Um, I had been there almost two years. Uh, one of the things uh, WCW was able to pull off while I was there was the coup of getting Hulk Hogan out of the WWF. And not only Hogan, but Savage and Duggan and a lot of other guys at Vince had, uh, you know, that were big stars for Vince. And they'd been able to land those guys in WCW. And it sort of changed the nature of the company, the, the course of the company and the focus of the company. And to, and to a certain extent, I understand that when you're bringing in Hulk Hogan, you're bringing in at that time the biggest name ever in the wrestling industry. Uh, but the focus of the company was totally on Hogan and friends. 
And there were a lot of those, a lot of us that were there before those got there. And we were sort of just uh, pushed to the back. They didn't, they really didn't focus on tag team wrestling, which Marcus and I were tag team there called Stars and Stripes. We had the tag team belts on two occasions. So I had an opportunity. Uh, Mr. Baba had reached out to me and uh, I was under contract, Eric. I still had almost a year left to go. And so I went to Eric and I sat down with him and I said, look, dude, I'm ready to get out of here. You're not using me. You're not doing anything with me. Let me out of my last year. I'll go back to Japan. Nobody in the States will see me work. I'll be on the other side of the world. I'm not going to be a threat. Your fans aren't going to see me. Uh, that Japanese TV doesn't come here. And he wouldn't let me out of it. So I walked out of it. Did you know I, that WCW Nitro was on the horizon then? Because I, I feel like you, you left around May or June, and in September they were on TV. Would that have changed anything for you if you did know, or, or were you aware no, already? No, it, it wasn't going to change anything for me. My mind was set. I was getting out of there with or without his permission. Either way, I was, I was supposed to be, I'm not sure, I, I keep thinking Tupelo, Mississippi, maybe I'm wrong on the, the town, but Marcus and I were supposed to be there. It was a live show on TBS, and uh, I felt like I had an obligation to Marcus to let him know what I was going to do. That's my tag team partner. He deserves a heads up, and I called him, and I told him, I said, dude, I will not be there Sunday night. Uh, I'm headed back to Tokyo. I'm going back to Japan and work for Mr. Baba. So Marcus was the only one I gave a heads up to, and I got out of there. I was determined I was out of there. I wanted to go. Well, pretty early on when you came into WCW, they immediately put you in like a program with who we now know as William Regal, then Steven Regal. You had some, some title matches. You had some really competitive matches there. How did you feel initially coming into the company and being put against a guy like that in a spot like that? Well, I felt good. I went there to be a singles wrestler. Uh, I wasn't there that long, and, and they started uh, focusing on some tag team stuff and putting together some pretty good tag teams. Uh, the Nasty Boys, Harlem Heat, pretty wonderful Paul Roma, and uh, Paul, um, what's his name? Paul um, uh, Orndorff. Paul Orndorff, yes. Wow, you get old. <laughs> uh, and so they had some good tag teams there, and uh, so they came to me with the idea of teaming with Bagwell. I'd known Marcus since our days in uh, the GWF. He worked as a handsome stranger there. And um, so I, I liked Marcus. We got along well. I thought we had a great time together. We uh, fit well. We were a good tag team. And uh, But like I said, once Hogan and Hogan's friends got there, the focus of that company shifted. And again, to a certain extent, I get that. You've got to take advantage of having the biggest name in the business there. But it just seemed like if you were part of that inner circle of Hulk Hogan, uh, then you were put in programs that were up front. Uh, if you weren't, then you were just sort of sort of shoved to the side. So I walked. So in kind of looking things up and doing my research for interviews like this, I, I look at when you and Marcus formed a team. And it was funny because like the first day that you all teamed together on TV, you all were filming like five or six matches over the course of a week because it was those there's worldwide taping. So you all went from not teaming together to having like five or six matches in the can where you're winning all of them in a week. Uh, eventually you all won the tag titles, but how did that feel that, that during those tapings where they're like, oh yeah, you're going to team up, you're going to wrestle, and by the way, you're winning like five or six matches on these tapings? Well, we would go down to Orlando, Florida, and we would uh, spend several days down there uh, working MGM Studios, uh, people that were in the uh, 
Uh, they, were, they would let the fans come in as part of being um, in Disneyland in the MGM studios and to be there for the TV taping of WCW. Um, so we would be there maybe three, four, five days. I really can't remember how long, but we were filming all day long, every day. So we were getting a bunch of stuff in the can to be shown later. And uh, so, yeah, you're there and you're working two or three times one day. The next day, you may only work one time. The next day, you may have to work two or three more times in the course of that day uh, just for those TV tapings and those worldwide shows. So, yeah, we were thrown together quick and uh, put straight to work. We earned our money. You mentioned that tag team division then. It was loaded. Like, I mean, you guys were there. Harlem Heat was there. They were really starting to build something with that tag team division. How did you feel working with some teams like that? Harlem Heat was a, I don't want to say inexperienced, but a younger team in some regards. And there were a lot of varying levels of experience there. As you mentioned, Roma and Orndorff as well. How was that for you? Oh, I enjoyed it. Uh, and they were they were a younger team then. You're exactly right. Uh, and then you had the Nasty Boys. that had been together for a long time. They had worked for Vince before. So they were experienced. And Paul Roma and Orndorff, uh, it were greatly experienced, maybe not together as a tag team, but two guys that had been in the business for, for a while and were very well established and good workers. And um, they later put um, a Bunkhouse Buck and uh, somebody else together. So you had a lot of talent that had been around there for a while. And after you left WCW, uh, you ended up in All Japan. I know you were working Rob Van Dam a lot before most people even knew who he was. Could you tell that he was going to be something special when you when you were in the ring with him, or was was it still kind of coming together still? No, I could tell, and I'd worked with Rob even before that, uh, back in the early '90s, uh, when I first started doing the Trooper character. Uh, I worked. Um, I was working for Global. I was under contract with them, but we only worked two days a week, and that was Friday and Saturday. We'd go out to Dallas for our TV tapings at the Sportatorium. And so I had a lot of time during the week to work independent shows around North and South Carolina. So I worked for a guy named Greg Price at South Atlantic Pro, Pro Wrestling. And uh, uh, Van Dam was there as well. And, and, and Van Dam had just really broke into the business and was doing a lot of shows for Greg. So I met Rob way back then, probably in 90, maybe 91 or 92. And now fast forward several years and we're back together in all Japan. But I could always tell the guy had uh, tremendous talent, man. He was a, uh, he was a good hand. He could do a lot. He was very talented, very versatile, and uh, I always enjoyed working with him. That 95 looked like really wild for you because you started out in WCW and you're doing tag title programs and all that. By then, WCW had kind of returned, I think maybe the year before, to a full house show thing. And when you went to, to All Japan, you immediately went to All Japan. There wasn't like a three-month buffer or anything like that. I feel like you were working for him like a week or two later and full time, you I think yeah. you you wrestled something like 140 matches that year, and that's between two different countries. How was that on you physically? Like, was the transition okay? Well, I was back in Japan where I had been before, and you're right, I didn't take any time off. I went straight from WCW from the uh, show I was supposed to be at to literally on an airplane headed to Tokyo, and. Uh, I'd been there before, so I knew what to expect, and it was a more physical style there. Working for the two different companies uh, wasn't tough at all, but just the style in all Japan was much tougher. Uh, both times that I worked there for Mr. Baba, that was just the type of business they did. Our, our shows were set up that way. Our matches were set up that way, 
it sort of lent itself to physicality in the ring. Because if you think about it, Sean, what we did in all Japan, our TV shows had great ratings over there and we filled up, we sold out everywhere we went, but it yeah. was strictly based on the ring, the ring action. We had no TV shows that, that included interviews, promos. Every match had a clean finish. There were no managers, no valets, no run-ins, no, no, no double DQs, no disqualifications, no countouts. Every match ended in the middle of the ring with somebody getting pinned and somebody getting their hand raised. So when you're doing business that way, you've really got to, you've really got to perform in the quality of matches have to be up there and, and it was listen i i will put the business that baba did throughout the 90s up against any in the history of the business ever that was as good a business and as high quality of matches as probably will ever be seen in this industry do you i mean the quality of matches had to be i mean through the roof to to maintain that audience base we see today the same matches happening on raw and the 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 viewers dwindle back then in, in all Japan. It wasn't necessarily happening like that, even though you saw a lot of people work together a lot, but also it was a lot, it was more live event based, right? Yeah, it was, it was all, you know, pretty much live event based. Um, we, uh, we sold out, if I'm not mistaken, over 230 consecutive shows in Tokyo and, uh, between, uh, Cork and hall and the Budokan, which was where we ended up every tour. The Super Bowl of every tour was the last night of the tour in Budokan Hall there in Tokyo. And when you uh, you take that type of quality matches night after night, uh, you take that Japanese lineup with the four pillars of Misawa, Kawada, Kabashi, Tauwei, then you take that American lineup of Hanson, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Terry Gordy, myself, Johnny Ace, uh, the Fantastics, uh, were there, Doug Furness and Danny Crawford, uh, bring in Dory Funk, uh, occasionally Abdul the Butcher, uh, and we even brought in uh, Andre one time right before he passed. But when you combine those two lineups with that who's who list of pro wrestling names, uh, man, you're going to do great business, and Mr. Baba did. He was, a, he was a brilliant promoter, a brilliant promoter. You spent a couple of years there, and you moved over to WWF, but this was not your first time in WWF. I know that you did a dark match in 91. You did several uh, house shows, a TV taping, a lot of stuff in 92. How did those appearances come about, and were, were they a trial run? What were those? It was sort of a trial run. Uh, they brought me in. And I can't remember how long he was going to be out, but Rick Martell was hurt and was going to miss some time. And so he wasn't going to be out, be out on the road. And so they brought me in to sort of fill that spot and go out on the road with them for a while and uh, did some dark matches and, and, and worked several matches with them and, and had the opportunity uh, to go to work for them then. But the All Japan opportunity had come up, and, and I just felt that was more important to me. Uh, back then, at that time in the business, if either New Japan or All Japan offered you a full-time job, that was a feather in your cap in the business. People in the business that worked in the business, that made a living in the business, looked at being being a, uh, afforded the opportunity to work for either of those companies in Japan was really a, a, a big, big deal, a big deal. And uh, eventually you did find your way back to All Japan. You spent a couple of years there before moving to WWF. Were you on like a per-appearance deal? Was it a contract? Because it seems like you were able to make that transition to WWF pretty much at when you decided to. 
No, the way Baba worked everything, Baba never had a, a piece of paper that you signed. It was never done that way. There was no contract. Uh, you would negotiate with Baba. Uh, he, he ran 28 weeks a year, that company did. And most of it was three-week tours, three weeks at a time. We had a couple of four-week tours uh, um, yeah, in the year, and then one two-week tour in February. And uh, But it all uh, added up to 28 weeks a year. And once you were able to come to terms with Baba on the amount that you were going to be paid per week uh, when you were working for him, uh, it was a handshake, and that's all it was. There was no... Uh, how long are we going to do this for? Is it going to be for two or three years? If Baba said you're working for me, then you were working for Baba as long as you wanted to be there. And uh, I just went to him and I told him I had the opportunity to get back to the States. And Sean, at this time, my body was really, really starting to fail me. I had some major injuries that I was dealing with. I'd been through a bunch of surgeries already. And as much as I love Japan and as much as it, it's, it is, it's a highlight of my career, career working there, it took a toll on my body, uh, just that uh, physical nature of that uh, other style of matches. And I knew that uh, in order to pro prolong my career a little bit more, I needed to get back to the States where I could work that uh, United States style where you could sort of save your body a little bit. It wasn't as physically demanding as the Japanese style was. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you thought that that took years off your career because you effectively wrapped up your career at 36, and now that's a lot of wrestlers haven't even hit their prime at that age. Correct. Yeah, it did. It did take years off my career, and, and not only was the style responsible for that, but I was as well. I remember one time, and I think it was my first time around in the early 90s working for Baba. Uh, Stan pulled me aside. Stan and I became very good friends there and uh, still are to this day. And he said, you know, you jumping off that top rope doing that Patriot missile, he said, it looks good. And I was doing uh, drop kicks off the top turnbuckle. He said, all that looks great. You're a big athletic guy and it's impressive. He said, but I'm going to tell you right now, he said, you're going to wear your body out. He said, if you want longevity in this business, he said, you need a finish where you don't have to leave your feet make the other guy leave his feet. He said, but you don't have to jump around and fly around, especially as big as you are. And he told me, he was very prophetic. He said, you're going to mess up your knees and you're going to mess up your triceps. And both of those are what caused my career to end way before I wanted it to. Well, right before that happened, you did come into WWF. Who reaches out to you to make that contact? Did this come, come together quickly? Because it seemed like you wrapped up with All Japan, got started with WWF in a hurry. Yeah, it did happen very quickly. Um, I had been contacted uh, guys that I had known for a while. Jim Ross had reached out to me. Uh, Bruce Pritchard had reached out to me. Uh, I knew Bruce from the GW, GWF days when he was there. And then Cornette had reached out to me. All three of them had reached out to me and said, hey, man, listen, we'd love to have you in here. Vince wants to talk to you. And uh, finally, uh, after a long conversation with J.R., uh, I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'd love to sit down and talk with Vince. And so they flew me up and uh, had that same sort of sit down with him that I had years earlier with Bischoff and WCW. They offered me a three-year deal. Again, I took a couple of days to look it over and consider it and think about it and discuss it with my family and then decided that's what I needed to do. So uh, I signed off on the three-year deal and then went to work for Vince. So when, when they're courting you, so to speak, you you got to be fully aware of the USA-Canada thing going on there right now. And that was lightning in a bottle. That was a very special time in wrestling. 
So when when you're being courted to be brought in, are you told, yeah, you're going to be involved in this? Not necessarily. I wasn't. As a matter of fact, the day I flew up and met with Vince, Vince wasn't, and no pun intended, he wasn't convinced that a masked guy could really get over over with the WWF crowd at that time and the WWF fan base. And uh, we had a long discussion about that. And I said, Vince, I just totally, with all due respect, um, I totally disagree with you. This character has gotten over everywhere I've worked. Uh, Global, WCW, All Japan. uh, It's always been one that's gotten a great response from the fan base and the people have gotten behind it. And uh, I think it can work here as well. And so he, um, I think, in a sort of a hesitant way, agreed to let me continue doing that. I'm one of the few guys that went in there with his own gimmick uh, that Vince didn't create and was able to keep that character and leave with it as well. And uh, so he said, okay, let's let's see how this thing goes. And I think he saw uh, the kind of reception I was getting night after night and the way the people were responding to me. So then that's when he came to me about the idea of pairing Brett and I up in this Santa or this Canada and America feud, Canada, America angle. And it worked great. Did they ever try to yank the mask off of you? You hear that a lot, especially in that era where they're like, ah, okay, we're just going to abruptly pull the mask off. It happened a lot more in WCW than WWF, but being Vince McMahon and not liking masks, was that ever broached with you? No, after that day when I flew up there to meet with him and we both discussed myself, uh, you know, talking about how I thought the character could get over and work in the WWF. At first, like I said, Vince was a little hesitant to buy into that. But once he gave me his blessings and said, "Okay, we'll go with it and let's see how it works. Um, And then he was good to go and he saw how well it worked. And then that's when he, like I said, came up with the idea of pairing um, Brett and I together. Now, you were never outright in a WWE video game, but your likeness very much was. I don't know if you had known this, but like in the creator wrestler and stuff, they very blatantly used your mask, your gear, your stuff like that. Was that ever anything that you brought up to them? Did they ever bring it up to you? Because, I mean, t- to me, it was it was pretty transparent. Like, that's the Patriot. They, they created the template there for you to create them very, very easily. Yeah, they did. And uh, I tell you, the whole thing happened so quick. I mean, I wasn't there that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a memorable 1997 with Brett and I, but I wasn't there that long uh, just because of the injuries. Um, man, I was damaged goods when I got there. And I knew, I knew that I was just, uh, I was walking on thin ice and it literally was just, I don't know how long I can make this thing go and how long I can continue to do this but I'm going to ride it to the end. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. When I signed that three-year deal, uh, you know, I told my wife, I said, they'll never, I'll never be able to fulfill these three years. My body was in that kind of bad shape. So I I knew I wouldn't make it the whole three years. So did they ever say, Hey, you know, we're going to reimburse you for anything like using your likeness in the game or anything? Or was that just, no, I, uh, I listen, I haven't been in a WWF ring in, uh, since 1997. Yeah. And I, and I still get royalty checks uh, every quarter. Uh, so they've they've done a good job of uh, making sure I get paid off anything of my likeness that sells. And um, they, uh, Vince is good about that. So it's hard to believe over 20 years <laughs> later, actually 23 years later, I still get, uh, get royalty checks. And you're working on WWF TV against names like Triple, people who are now Triple H, Owen Hart, Bret Hart, Vader, a guy who you were familiar with from the past. 
how did you feel coming in there knowing your physical limitations at that time, but getting the type of push that you were getting at that time? Well, I knew eventually <laughs> it was going to come to an end. I didn't know how long it would last. I even, and, and, and uh, Brett stooged me off. I was, I knew I was going to be married up with Brett with this angle we were doing. And there were just, you know, I just told him, I said, there's a couple of things I just probably am not going to be able to do Brett uh, in the ring. And of course, the next thing I know is I'm talking to Vince and Vince wants to know why I'm limited and why I think I can't do this and that. And, uh, but I knew, I, I knew that I was, and, uh, but I was going to go as long as I could. And I did, uh, as long as I could physically, physically perform, but, uh, man, I, I, I ripped my tricep up. Uh, I couldn't even work out anymore. I couldn't do any type of bench press, incline press, overhead press. So my body was also starting to, to change a bit. I wasn't as big and thick and bulky as I once was, uh, just because I was limited in what I could do in a weight room, in a ring, uh, it, you know, it just affected me all around. You uh, beat Bret Hart very early on. Was there any pushback from Bret? Was, was he playing ball? Did he feel okay with that? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I uh, I thought about that when uh, I was told what was going to happen that night at TV, or I, I was told the week before what was going to happen with Bret and I in Pittsburgh. And uh, I made sure to go over and talk to Bret. You know, listen, we're professionals here. Let's talk about this. And uh, he was good with it, man. He was perfectly fine with it. Bret was a pro. He was a pro's pro. And uh, he was good with it. Uh, he um, working with him was very familiar to me, even though I'd never worked with him before. But Brett worked snug, uh, which I was accustomed to in all Japan. It wasn't stiff, but it was stuck, snug. He wanted to look believable, and um, he was very methodic. Uh, and I liked the, the way he worked. We, we just meshed well together. We got along well together. We had a lot of long conversations in locker rooms and over the telephone. Uh, about what we were going to try to do with this thing and where we were going to try to take it and, you know, trying to set up different matches and things like that. So it was great to work with. And then you, you would work with Owen Hart, Vader. You'd beat both of them. Uh, was was that pretty easy to deal with too? I mean, I, you never hear many stories about Owen Hart being difficult. Vader may be a little physical, and at that stage of your career, was that something that you you were particularly looking forward to? Well, I'd worked one time... Uh, not a, I don't know, maybe it was a match somehow. And I can't remember the occasions I didn't up in the ring or remember how it happened, but I ended up in the ring with Vader in WCW and, uh, he stiffed me one time. So I, uh, I laid one in on him. And after we got back in the locker room afterwards, you know, he, he brought it up to me. He said, dude, he said, that was a stiff elbow. Yeah. I said, so was yours. And so, you know, we, we don't have to work this way, but when I got to WWF and, and, um, you know, I was told he was going to put me over. There was no issue with him. Uh, and I got to be honest with you. This is just my opinion. I was there. I saw it happen. The Vader in WCW wasn't the same Vader in the WWF. His um, his assurance, his confidence uh, had been knocked down a couple of pegs. Uh, the big guy that was the, the giant killer and crushed everybody in WCW wasn't the same guy that was in the WWF. And I, that had an effect on Leon's psyche. It had an effect on his confidence. We we spent several weeks on the road together, driving together, traveling together, working out together. And he poured his heart out to me on how that had affected him there, having to do jobs for guys like uh, Sean, who was much smaller than him. And uh, it just uh, it affected his psyche big time. 
So you were scheduled for a pretty big match, I think, at maybe or the, the pay-per-view before Survivor Series. You end up t- hurting your arm, and you, you worked a couple matches that kind of wrapped up your WWF run. Uh, Jim Neidhart, and then one with Jim Neidhart and a Bulldog. Did you know at that point, like, that's it, my career's yeah, done? I did. I, the business that I fought so hard to get into, the business that I loved, what, there were two things I dreamed of as a child here in Columbia, South Carolina. I dreamed of playing football for the University of South Carolina, and I got to do that and do it at a very high level. And I dreamed of becoming a pro wrestler, and I got to do that. And now this dream of becoming a pro wrestler, I knew was about over. I got sick and tired of just always hurting, always being in pain, always having to deal with these injuries. I did not get hurt in the WWF. I arrived there hurt. I was a mess when I got there physically. Uh, A knee that has since been replaced three times, uh, a right tricep that was just shattered and has, has been reattached three times from tearing off from the tendon. And I was sick of just the vicious circle of pain pills to try to get through a match, to try to get through a workout in a gym, Uh, the pain pills to try to sleep at night, the sleeping pills, the the somas, the muscle relaxers. It was a vicious, vicious circle. And I was tired of it. And I was almost relieved. I got the call one day. I talked to my doctor and I said, doc, I can't do this anymore. And this guy had operated on me numerous times. And uh, he said, well, give me a little while. He said, I just want to think about this. And he said, that's a big step, Dale, for you just to say you want to throw your hands up just like that. And uh, he said, think about it for a while and maybe we'll talk tomorrow. Well, the next day I get a phone call from him and he's on the line and it's a conference call and it's Vince and JR, uh, Jim Ross. And they're all three talking to me. And Vince said, Dale, he said, listen, man, he said, you've got to get healthy. You've got to get your body healed up. There are some serious surgeries you need. And Vince's words were to me, take as much time as you need off, get the surgeries, heal up. And if you want to come back and work, you've got a place here. And even if you want to work a limited schedule, we'll do that for you. But it just never materialized to go back. So, yeah, I knew I was done. Sorry, my microphone shorted out. Did you get that? Yeah, yeah, I did get that. I did get that. So when he's telling you that, I mean, that that has to make you feel appreciated at the very least. Being there for such a short amount of time, as you mentioned, and being so fondly remember, uh, remembered, are are you still on good terms with WWE? Do you ever speak with them? Um, I've spoke to people that worked in the company. I don't think I really ended up on that good of terms with Vince because several years after I was out of the WWE, um, I did some TV programs, CNN, uh, a Real Sports with Bryant Gumble. I uh, had an interview with Armin Katayan, and I was very vocal uh, about the drug abuse in wrestling, about the steroid abuse, uh, which I, I had done all those things, but I had seen the effect that it had on me. And, uh, and, and keep in mind, too, at this time, uh, when I was being vocal about these things, we were losing guys and girls left and right within the industry. I mean, they were dropping like flies. And uh, I just felt like somebody within the industry needed to do something to prevent all this from happening. And uh, I was there. I witnessed Pillman. And the last few weeks of his life for the last few months. And, Sean, it was obvious that anybody that was there in the WWF, Brian was going to crash and burn. It was obvious something bad was going to happen. 
and bless his heart, it did, and God rest his soul. So I was very vocal about the drug culture in wrestling, and as a result of that, um, you know, I'm sure Vince and didn't appreciate the things I had said. We were on a couple of the same shows together, and uh, so I, I feel pretty certain I didn't end up on his Christmas card list. As we wrap up, I mean, there there are still some influences the Patriot felt today. You've spoken on the record. Like, Tom Brandy has said that he used the Patriot gimmick with your blessing. You've said that is not the case. A lie. I mean, there's not one ounce of truth in that. You know, the last time I saw Tom Brandy, and I didn't know this, uh, I went back and thank God for YouTube. Uh, when I was first in the WWE, I won some big battle royal that was yeah. on one of the Saturday night shows. And I didn't even realize it until a couple of years ago when I was watching this thing. It was the first time I'd watched it since it had happened that night. And Tom was in the ring with me. I didn't realize that. I thought the last time I saw Tom was in Japan when he came over for one tour with all Japan. So I've not talked to Tom in decades. And uh, he's not approached me about anything. So, yeah, that's that's a lie. So even when called out about it, like he's just kept doing it and – not a, not yeah. bothered to reach out to you. Not at all. And, and you know. You were very you, easy for me to contact. It was not difficult to get a hold of you. <laughs> right. And he could have done the same thing. And if he wanted to use some variation of that character, okay, go ahead and do it. But just to call yourself the Patriot. And here's the extra thing that really, really just curled my stomach up in knots and wanted to knock his teeth down his throat is I've had people reach out to me, fans, uh, who have gotten autographs signed by him, and they've showed me pictures of it, or, or my action figure. This guy never had an action figure. I had a couple of them. And they've asked him, are you Dale Wilkes? And with the mask on, he replies, yes, I am. I'm the wow. guy that worked in the WWF. So, yeah, he's scum. He's he's he, he's a guy that never had a career, uh, you know, trying to pretend to be a guy that did have a good career. Do you ever have promoters reach out to you, like, confused about this? Like, I mean, there have to be people that think that they have met you. I mean, as you mentioned, because, I mean, he's still doing it as recently as, as 2020. Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, just this past weekend, I was in New York City. I had two appearances there. And the second one, I had a guy come up to me, and um, it was me, Val Venus, and then Valentine, Greg Valentine, and Greg uh, Valentine, yeah, yeah, and um, uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan. The four of us were there. So this guy, um, the promoter, says, "Do you want a picture with the Patriot?" Because the guy was trying to decide who he oh. wanted his picture with. He said, "No, man, I've already got one." He said, uh, "I got a picture with you last year in Maryland," and I said, "No, you didn't, dude. You, you haven't got a picture with me." He said, "Well, it, the guy said he was the Patriot." So yeah, I've had a lot of people. Oh, yeah, I've gotten your picture, your autographs. You signed the action figure for me when I was in so-and-so. And I can just tell by the timeline in the in the locations they give me that I wasn't there at that event, and it wasn't me. So, yeah, there's been a lot of confusion with that with promoters and fans. You mentioned the action figure. I was never much of an action figure guy until, like, the last few months, and I've actually collected some from that era. One of yours is one of them that I picked up. What was that like for you, seeing your your likeness, your personality immortalized in an action figure? You know, it was funny. I uh, The first time I saw it, uh, I guess my wife, at the time, my wife and I, we were at a Walmart or either a Target somewhere here in Columbia. And uh, we were walking through the toy section. It was one of our kids' birthday. And all of a sudden, she goes, look, there you are. 
And she said, you've, she said, you've been immortalized in rubber. She said, what? isn't that funny? So yeah, to see your, you know, your likeness there hanging on a, a shelf in a toy store or in a department store was a pretty neat thing. And to realize that uh, literally people all around the world, you know, were buying them and, and uh, making them a part of their collection. And uh, as we wrap up, of course, people often recognize the Kurt Angle theme song as your original theme song. How did you feel when you heard that, like like that kind of being recycled? It is it is very fitting. It does have that all-American feel. Well, he got it the same way I did, I'm sure. Uh, I've never talked to Kurt about that particular subject. But I was given a list of songs to listen to. Uh, I didn't know at the time that Slaughter had used it on one occasion uh, to go to the ring. And there are maybe more than one, but I do know one of one occasion he had. But uh, it was the one I picked out of the list of songs they gave me. I liked it the best. I thought it was fitting. Uh, and then um, then he ended up using it as well. And uh, more power to him. Yeah, no I think problem. it ended up serving. Sir, the fact that three you three people were the ones that ended up picking or using that song, I think is pretty evident that the person who composed it did a pretty good job and yeah, nailed it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. As he has with a lot of the music throughout the decades in, in the WWE. So the last question, I noticed that you had done a documentary, I think it was about five years ago, and it was a, it was a big production. I remember it being like three discs. What was that process like for you? Uh, how was that for you, and how do you look back upon it? Well, it was really enjoyable. A guy named Michael Elliott, um, he was running the thing called Elbow Docs, and he had done documentaries on the Rock and Roll Express, Harley Race, Ivan Koloff, uh, Magnum TA. He had done many others, and he approached me at a fan fest convention. Uh, I think it was Wrestlecade in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yeah. And uh, he came up to me. He said, look, I'm Michael Elliott. Uh, my wife had already been in contact with him through social media, and uh, she'd come to me with the idea. So I finally got a chance to meet him at Wrestlecade. And he said, I've got to be honest with you. He said, I've done docs and all these other guys. Here are some that you can look at and tell me what you think. He goes, but as a teenager, you were my favorite wrestler. And he said, I would love to work with you on this. And uh, it turned out great. Michael did a great job. He works for High Spots now, but just a wonderful job. It was, uh, like you said, three discs over seven hours. And it covered my entire life uh, from birth to where I was at that time and the ups and downs uh, the high points, the low points, it had family included, other people I worked with. So uh, I was very pleased with it, and we have literally shipped those things all over the world and still do to this day. Also, I miss WrestleCade. I was really bummed they didn't do it for 2020 because of everything going on, but also always a great time there. Uh, it is. Dell, tell the people where they can follow you, where they can check you out, what you're, what you're up to, and, and really where they can support you and what you're doing. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Del Wilkes, all caps at Del Wilkes. Of course, Facebook, Del Wilkes. Uh, that's also where every Sunday night at eight o'clock on Facebook, Facebook Live, my personal page, or that of my co-host Avi Klein, K L E I N. Uh, you can catch Unmasking the Truth every night at, or every Sunday night at eight. It's our podcast. It's grown and grown and grown, and I tell you, man, we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, we've got a lot of wonderful people that view it every Sunday night and follow us and participate. Also, too, for any merchandise items, uh, mask, uh, the documentary pictures, 8x10, football cards from my playing days uh, at the nice. University of South Carolina. All of that is at De it's uh, Dell 
thepatriotwilks.com is a website. Dell, D-E-L, thepatriotwilks.com. And all of it will be autographed and sent back to you. And uh, so we're fortunate that we're sending a lot of merchandise all over the world as well. And we thank the loyal fans for that. We're very appreciative. Isn't it amazing how different wrestling is than from the last time you had your match? Like a podcast wasn't even a thing then. And now it's become this incredible avenue for for all of us, for, for so many people to learn about wrestling. Um, it has. And, and you know, I, quickly, uh, just to go back sure. and plug it again, Unmasking the Truth, we talk about wrestling, but very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're more centered around current day events, uh, you know, what's happening in the world today, uh, things like that. We, we, we do a lot of political content. Uh, we do some entertainment, some movies, some news. We do have a segment every Sunday that's dedicated to all Japan. We're going to have one in a couple of Sundays dedicated to Wahoo and my relationship with him. But we do a little bit of wrestling and a lot of everything else. Patriot Del Wilkes, thank you so much for taking the time. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you inviting me on. Guys, the next time, until next time, rather, easy for me to say, we're out. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.